want to say thank you to the church for your grace continually with Jenny and I. On so many, so many occasions we have been so blessed by our church family. Those of you who don't know, Jenny and I were 23 when we came here as pastor. And so on Mother's Day, I'm always grateful for the many, many in this church that acted as mothers for us and loved us and still love us and we love you. Last week, you gave us your grace in that we were away kind of suddenly. Not many of you knew that we were going to be gone. My grandmother on my dad's side is pretty sick. So they called us in and said, you know, if you're going to talk to her, you're going to see her, it's probably time. So last Saturday, Jenny and I and my family sat beside a hospital bed in a nursing home, talked with my grandmother. What it looks like will be the last time uh, on this earth. And as we sat there, Jenny asked a question to her. It was, Grandmama Wade, how, how can we pray for you? We'll pray for strength and for God's presence presence with you. How can we pray for you? And she began to talk about her marriage. She began to talk about my grandfather and uh, just wanting to get home. She, she, didn't, she didn't even really ask for, hey, just pray that God will heal me. Uh, she gave us a real sense that she knew her time was, was close on this earth. And we were told Friday that her Bible signs were such that she probably would not make it through the weekend. So I fully expect a call today to say that my grandmother's gone to be with Jesus. But she looked at us and she said to us, I have been married to my grandfather, his name's R.C., who's sitting there in a wheelchair, can't really even sit up very much. About lost him six months ago. I'm blessed to have both of those grandparents still living. And he's 91, sitting there in a wheelchair, can't stay very long with her, just beside her bed, saying to me, I miss her so much, I miss her so much when I'm at home. And uh, she said, you know, we've been married 69 years. And I really would just love to be home with him, to cook another meal for him, and just be there when I go to be with Jesus. As they sat there, this picture of God's intention for marriage was reminded of what I'm preaching this morning to us. You see, they didn't get everything right in their marriage, but they persevered in sacrificial love and respect for one another. As we come to the text of Scripture in Matthew 19, that no doubt many of you are going to ask, why in the world would you preach this on Mother's Day? I'm reminded of what God has told us that marriage should be, and what you and I know in this world that it very often is not, and we should long for the way it's supposed to be. So contrast the picture of me sitting there with my grandmother and grandfather, who most likely in this day or the next will be separated until the glorious kingdom of our Savior comes. Contrast that with the brokenness and the ugliness and the hurt and the despair of divorce, which has touched every one of us, some to a greater extent than others. For me, personally, this text is very heavy because some of the darkest years of my life were the years that I walked through the absolute despair and tearing apart of my own parents' marriage and their divorce. 
Some of you have close friends. Some of you have family. Some of you have watched parents go through divorce. Some of you have watched your own children go through divorce. Some of you, you're sitting here and you have gone through, walked through divorce. And so you know things are not the way they're supposed to be. And when we come to a text like this, the emotional rawness, the painfulness of divorce comes back flooding over us. And today I want to bring you to a passage in Matthew's Gospel, in the middle of our study in the Gospel of Matthew. And my hope is that we would all understand Jesus' teaching on marriage as a preview of what is to come in the kingdom and the restoration not only of relationships, but the restoration of all things. You see, our Savior is teaching us about the kingdom. And that kingdom will be such that there will be no sin. There will be no sin against one another. There will be no sin against us. We will be made whole. And things that rip us apart, like divorce, will not be in that kingdom. And we focus there in our text. So I hope that we'll all understand Jesus' teaching on how we as believers are to live today as a preview of that kingdom. And then we would understand that while we are in a preview to that kingdom, sin still touches our lives. Sin still rips apart marriages in our day. So we need to understand how the gospel speaks to divorce. Whether it means those close to us or even to our very selves. So let's look at the text and see what we can learn this day as we continue our study in Matthew's Gospel. There's a transition here in chapter 19 of Matthew's Gospel. Verse uh, Chapter 18 has been the fourth of five discourses in this Gospel. I mentioned to you back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, these five discourses that Jesus t- teaching times through the Gospel. We come to another, an end of that, not insignificantly. Jesus has been teaching about life in the kingdom, how those that sin against us should be seen, and how we should be careful not to sin against others. But when we do, how we forgive one another. And then in chapter 19, the Bible has this transition statement that Matthew has used on three occasions so far. He'll use it again. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, and now he's going to move into another uh, uh, section of Jesus' ministry. And he's on his way to Jerusalem where we know that he will give his life. He told the disciples this was going to happen in chapter 16. I must go to Jerusalem where I will be killed. I will die and give my life. And But I will be raised again on the third day. And so he's on his way to Jerusalem. And Matthew just makes that commentary, that note in verse 1. And he also in verse 2 reminds us that he's not covering everything that Jesus does. And so remember this morning, Matthew has a purpose in his writing. He's writing for us to know, particularly in this section, how to be disciples, how to be those that follow after Christ as disciples of Christ. And so Matthew says, but this is not all that he does. So in verse 2 he says, and large crowds followed him. All the way, maybe from as far north as he had been, Caesarea Philippi, all the way back down toward through Galilee, toward Judea. And large crowds are following him. And the Bible says, and he healed them there. Wherever they're stopping here on the other side beyond the Jordan, they're stopping and he's doing ministry. Jesus is doing more ministry all the time. And in the midst of that, in the midst of him ministering to the crowds, verse 3, the Pharisees, yet again, those who are hostile to Jesus, come to him. And test him. 
And it's in this test that you and I see how the disciples are learning to be disciples of Christ. And this particular test is about the issue of marriage and divorce, but it's about how you and I live in the kingdom and how we follow after Jesus, even with our marriages. And so verse 3, look at the question. Those who are hostile toward Christ come to Him. They ask Him this question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife? For any cause. Now, let me just remind us of one thing and then teach us a little bit of background about this. Reminder, first, these very Pharisees, I believe, already trying to trap Jesus, already hostile toward Him, trying to find a way to get Him off the scene, are doing so in the context of just recently, Herod had had John the Baptist killed for preaching against divorce for any reason. So in the middle of this statement, in the middle of his ministry, you have the Pharisees coming to him and wanting to trap him. I firmly believe wanting to trap him in what he is saying. Let's see if this Jesus, the one who, by the way, in chapter 14, Herod says, this is John the Baptist reincarnated. Let's see if he believes the same thing that John the Baptist did, implied, I think, so that he will suffer the same fate as John the Baptist. Because Herod had him. Kill. Maybe he'll lose popularity with the people because they don't believe what John the Baptist believed per se. And that means I need to teach you the background of this text as well. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? There were primarily two schools of thought on divorce in Jesus' day. One was called the school of Hillel. He was a teacher and uh, he had, and those who followed him extended the meaning of Deuteronomy 24.1, which speaks about divorce. It doesn't command it, as we're going to see in a minute, but it speaks about divorce. He had extended the meaning of that statement of something indecent. You can be divorced for on the grounds of something indecent. They extended that meaning to mean anything which a man found offense at with his spouse, including, in their writings, you find this, an improperly cooked meal. Now, we hear that and we think, how ridiculous. You cook a meal, you burn the bread, I'm divorcing you. That's an indecent offense. But, remind you, we live in a day where divorce can occur for almost anything. We have what's called, the last couple of decades, a no-fault divorce. Nobody's fault, we're just done, we're walking away. That's kind of where they were. You can divorce for any reason, no matter what. This is the more popular view in Jesus' day. I believe you... Study our culture. It's a more popular view in our day as well. It's akin to our no-fault divorce, what they believe. Then there was the school of Shemaiah. This They interpreted this as this statement, something indecent, as some gross indecency. It would certainly not be just adultery. It would be a little broader than that, sexual immorality, as Jesus is going to say in this text, because it would not be that Moses would allow divorce for anything. So in the nature of this political climate with Herod and that happening. They want to trap Jesus. They want Jesus to maybe say, I don't hold what is the most popular view here. Maybe he loses some followers. I'm not sure what they're doing, but they're testing him, and I believe that's why they're testing him. In any case, Jesus answers, and I want you to note this morning, what you and I must do is what Jesus does, and in this issue of divorce, Jesus begins to focus on marriage. So this morning for our time together, at least right now, I want us to focus on marriage and how you and I as disciples of Christ understand our 
marriages. Jesus answers verse 4. Look at it with me. He, As He begins to answer, He says, Have you not read? Did you not read what God, what I, He could say, have already said about this issue? And so this morning, I want to kind of bring us in these couple of verses, verses 4 through 9. I want to make four statements about Jesus' view of marriage and divorce. Four statements about Jesus' view of marriage and divorce from these verses to kind of set up what I want us to see Jesus doing. All right, four statements. Number one, statement number one, verse four, God designed marriage. God designed marriage. He focuses there. He says, have you not read? That is the Old Testament quoting them from Genesis chapter one, verse 27. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now note what Jesus is doing. He's going back to creation. He's going back to pre-fall. There is no sin when God creates all of the universe. And Jesus could clearly say, God created all things. But here He specifically, if you remember when we go through Genesis, God creates. He comes to the end of that creation day. There's morning and there's evening. The first day. God creates, says, speaks, let there be, creates, and there's morning and evening, the second day. And it gets to day six, and we slow way down. And the Bible says on day six, as God says, let us make man in our own image, in the likeness of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Jesus is quoting right there, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, to say, the design of human beings is God's design. It is not someone else's design. It's not some mistake. It's not some chance probability thing that happened. It is God's design that He made you male and female human beings to image Him. God's design. Now church, we're not going to get so sidetracked today except a few times. Here's one where we need to stand up in our culture and come back to where Jesus starts and you and I need to be those who would be spokesmen for uh, the Word of God, the God who created and not be afraid to say God created male and female. Male and female image God. They please God. He created the complementarity in who we are. God designed us and He designed marriage. Marriage, maleness, femaleness, they both are honored before God because it's His design to honor and image Him. Statement number 2, verse 5. God not only designed marriage, He defines marriage. Look at verse 5. And said, so God created Male and female. And then he said. Aren't you glad that God speaks, by the way? I love it when the Bible says God did something and then he tells them, here's what I'm doing. And God spoke, therefore. In other words, because I designed it, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now church, I grew up in a, in a, 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 a church that would read in especially these passages, I remember the reading of the King James Version. So if you hear me say this morning that Jesus is saying here, leave and cleave, that's what I grew up listening to. Some of you grew up in a church that you would have heard the same thing. Here the ESV says, leave and hold fast. Leave and hold fast. Leave and cleave. God not only designed marriage, now He is defining marriage. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 is what Matthew is quoting, excuse me, what Jesus is quoting here and is quoted for us not only God speaking in Genesis 2, 24 in, uh, here in Matthew chapter 19, quoting that, Mark chapter 10, 
parallel passage to this one quotes that. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24. And in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul quotes it again. So five times in your scriptures, we have God's definition of marriage. You think that God might have known we were going to miss it or had a probability of missing the definition of marriage. So he told it to us five times. God defines marriage. My friends, our culture, our government does not have a right, nor can it, because it didn't design marriage. God designed marriage. He then defines marriage. Right. It is between one man, one woman. They shall leave father and mother and cleave to one another. What a beautiful picture. I can't get out of my head. My grandfather grabbing my grandmother's hand, just wanting to hold her hand. And her saying, I just want to go home and be with her. Some of, or be with him, some of the most powerful images I have of my childhood are me wanting to be at my grandparents' house. I had cousins. We loved to stay there primarily because she cooked breakfast every morning. You woke up to the smell of bacon every time you stayed at her house. Amen. But you would sit down and you had to wait on the bacon. Maybe that's what made it really good because every morning they took turns. The Bible was laying on the breakfast table. They had breakfast together every morning. And every morning, one of them would pick up the Bible and they would read the Word of God together before they ate their breakfast. Every day. God defined marriage. My grandparents came and said, we are going to leave former life and dad. And we're going to cleave to one another like there's nothing else. Now that leaving and cleaving leads us to what Jesus is going to focus on here. And that is what God does in marriage. And look what He says. Leave father and mother, hold fast to one another. And the two shall become one flesh. And in case you miss it, verse 6, Jesus is going to repeat again. So, they're no longer two, but one flesh. Don't miss Jesus' focus on the one flesh design of marriage. This unity of this couple coming together and the sexual union that we read there is just the physical outworking of something that God does. This one flesh union of what God does in a couple that comes together is a work of God and it's a testimony of God's design of marriage being between one man and one woman. So God defines what marriage is. God defines what marriage is intended to do and to be. And we find that in other places in Scripture, as well as here, that marriage is meant to focus our attention, to reflect God's love for His people. So church, when we come to a teaching on divorce, we need to focus as the believers, as the people of God, on marriage being the picture of God's love for His people. And our marriages are meant to reflect His love for His people. His faithfulness will never end, even if divorce is a reality in our sinful world. But God's design is that your marriage and mine would be reflecting His relationship with us. You see, friends, God made us as relational beings. He made us to image Him in the way that we relate to one another. You were made as a relational being. And then God gave us the most precious gift He could ever give us. And that is to be able to enter into the most intimate relationship possible on earth. And that is Marriage. There is no relationship that's more intimate. There's no relationship that is closer and intended to be closer than marriage. And so Ephesians 5 says, 
Paul teaching on this very marriage and quotes this very passage from Genesis 2.24 and Paul says, I'm speaking of Christ and His church. So that your marriage is a testimony of God's faithfulness to His people and He will never be unfaithful. Ever. That's the nature of His marriage. And here, believers, Poplar Spring, because God will never be unfaithful. You and I will, should, must, never be unfaithful. So that leads us to our third statement, verse 6. God then determines marriage. Because it's reflective of Him, then our marriages must come into conformity to His love and His intention for our marriage. So, what's He say? So, verse 6, they no longer are two but one flesh. So what he's saying to the, to, the, to the questioners is that how could you separate something that's no longer two? You've been to a wedding? What we love to do is to light a unity candle at a wedding. Please hear me. I'm not trying to attack you. But I'm not all for the sand mixing that we do these days. In a functional way, nobody will ever separate that sand. But in a real way, you actually could separate every blue piece of sand with every white piece of sand that you mix. But if you put two flames into one flame, there is no separating those two flames again. They are one. There is no separation. That's the point Jesus is making. So the two become one. So his question back to them is, how, how could you ever separate what God joined together? Something that God so God determines the unity, the one flesh of marriage. If taken scripturally and seriously, verse 6, as God's work in our marriage, this means that marriage is unbreakable by man, but at least, Jesus is saying, it must not be separated by man. So the let not in verse 6 is an imperative. God has joined this couple together. Listen carefully to me. Therefore, divorce is not just the unfortunate result of two people not being able to live together in harmony. Divorce is rebellion against God's plan. It is. It's not God's plan. God determines marriage. And so, now what happens? Jesus is a functionally said divorce is not an option. You can't separate and you must not separate. So the Pharisees come back and they recognize Jesus really leaves no room for divorce in what he's just said. And so they capitalize on an apparent discrepancy because, I'm going to challenge you to do this, go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 24. I think they're misquoting it here. They're misusing it for sure. But Jesus has to acknowledge that Moses actually did acknowledge divorce in Deuteronomy 24. And the Pharisees come back and say, there's a discrepancy here between you saying men cannot or must not separate. And Moses is talking about the actual separation. So they follow up with a question. Why then, verse 7, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Notice Jesus' answer in verses 8 and 9. And this is my fourth statement about marriage and divorce. God despises divorce. God despises divorce. Note first that Jesus aligns himself with the prophet, with the, uh, prophet Malachi. Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. The Bible says God hates divorce. Second, he's just like Malachi in that he is going to root this in creation. He's already done so back in verse 4 and verse 5. And even here he says in this text, it was not so from the beginning in verse 8. But not from the beginning. 
wasn't this way from the beginning. In other words, church, marriage was designed and defined and determined by our Savior prior to the fall, which is the ideal that we're aiming at. So, married couples in here, your marriage is designed and defined by God to reflect the relationship of God to His people, and it was done so prior to the fall. So what happened? You know what happened, even as I set that question up. Don't you sin? <coughs> Moses, he says, allowed divorce. Notice in verse 7, they said Moses commanded divorce. Jesus, more rightly interpreting Deuteronomy 24, says Moses allowed divorce. Why? Because of your hardness of heart. Sin happens, and it happened in the world, and so because of sinfulness, we end up experiencing divorce. So, this morning, I want to remind us that Moses' teaching was a response to human failure, not something that planned for or, or gave a concession to say this is what God intended. It was never what God intended. It was a response to human failure. So, if Jenny were be able to stand up here this morning, she would tell you a reality that you all already know because I'm your pastor and you know me, and that is that she said I do on June the 20th of 1998 to a man who was a dreadful sinner. And not only was I a dreadful sinner on that day, but I am a sinner and I sin against my wife. I'm surprised by the great amen from her. <laughs> The reality is, I also said I do to a dreadful sinner. Because we live post-fall, you and I are entering into a marriage that is supposed to picture Christ and His church, and we're both sinners in it, and so we sin against one another. And sometimes that sin is so great that divorce either happens or sometimes is allowed, could, should, maybe even happen. And so what, what Jesus is saying is... I want you to focus on marriage. And if you're asking the question, on what grounds can I divorce? If you're looking for ways to divorce your spouse, then you're, you're looking at the wrong things. You need to be looking for ways to love your spouse in the way that Christ loves the church. That's what He's pointing to. That's what He is saying, even to the disciples, that there is a creation ordinance that the kingdom is pointing to and we're bringing back that kind of love for one another. And if you're living, you're conceding to the sinfulness of this world. There are realities that we have to live with with sin. But what we're aiming at is the perfection of pre-fall kingdom of heaven. And so because we're dreadful sinners, marriage brings two sinners together in the most intimate, humanly possible relationship. And Jesus says, because of your hardness of hearts, divorce had to be dealt with by Moses. The concession is not God's intention, but it's man's distortion of what God designed. All divorce then, listen, all divorce then is a result of sin. It seems that Scripture in verse 9, 1 Corinthians 7, may be saying to us that not all divorce is sinful, but all divorce is a result of sin. You get the difference? It means that here, verse 9, Jesus is going to say something like this to us. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, marries another, commits adultery. He is in sin if he is not doing so with the exception that Jesus is saying here. 1 Corinthians 7 says there's possible another exception. That is, if an unbeliever abandons a believer, then that is an acceptable divorce. In other words, you can go through those two 
conditional divorces without actually the divorce being sinful. But let me be clear. All divorce, no matter if it is one of these exceptions and you hold to those, either way, either way, the divorce is a result of sin because of the hardness of your hearts. Our sins sometimes can be so heinous and disastrous that divorce may sometimes be permissible as the lesser of two evils. In other words, instead of living in a marriage where there's continual sexual immorality and it's a continual breaking of the one flesh union that Jesus was, was focused on here, that it may be permissible, Jesus says. He, and he um, allowed for divorce. He permitted divorce, says of Moses, but he did not prescribe it. So while there are textual issues dealing with verse 9, and you can read about some of those probably even in your copy of God's Word, not the least of which is what is the meaning of sexual immorality. I don't want us to get bogged down in that in this message because it would take most of the rest of our time. I want you to know the force of Jesus' argument in verse 9 in this text points to the fact that while he does agree with the school of Shammai, Divorce is only possible or permissible for sexual morality, which is one of those two. What Jesus is doing in this context is not giving a concession for someone looking for a reason for divorce, which was the Pharisees' question. But Jesus is saying because of sexual immorality, the one flesh union has already been broken. And so if the union has already been broken, divorce is permissible. Let me just kind of add in right there, if though... I think that to be a correct picture of Christ, if in your marriage confession and repentance were to occur after sexual immorality, then in light of Matthew 18, forgiveness and reconciliation should be a, a possibility, I think, pursued. I would counsel that way. But here, the resulting implication is this. Marriage is God's design. It is to be entered into with seriousness. And as it is God who defines it, and God who joins the two of you together in this one flesh union, you must not divorce. And the weight of that is on the disciples. And so verse 10 gets us to the conversation with the disciples. Here's what they asked Jesus. Look at it with me. The disciples said to him, Jesus, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not even marry. There's some debate on what sense they're saying this in. Are they serious about it's better? Do they ask? Are they saying, I'm just kind of lighthearted, Jesus? Nobody really believes that. Everybody wants to do what they want to do. These, these people that you're teaching here, they believe they ought to be free. What the disciples are speaking, I believe, is at least in some way what the people would say back to Jesus. And that is this. If I'm not free to do what I think is best for me, then maybe I just ought not to even get married. Now, let's be clear. This is a trend in our world. I hope that nobody in this sanctuary is doing this, but if you are, let me call you to repentance. Our world has a man and a woman that think about marriage or think about commitment, say, hey, we're going to try this out for a while. We're just going to live together for a while. I'm going to encourage you to come to Jesus' view of marriage, Jesus' view of one flesh relationship joined together, something that only He does. And I'm going to encourage you to get married. That's what the Word says. Marriage is something. It's a gift of God. It is a gift that is to point to His relationship with us. So believers enter into it. It's something that He has given to us. So the disciples say, Lord, if that's the case, wouldn't it be better we just don't get married? So we don't have to break this one flesh union. 
And Jesus is going to respond to that with a pretty sharp statement to them about what I believe is celibacy. Now, he talks about uh, eunuchs here, and I think that's a picture of singleness in light of one flesh union, in light of verse 9, divorce coming, and, and what happens after divorce. Jesus responds to them, and he takes what they say seriously and says to them, verse 11, not everyone can receive the same. What's he saying? Not everyone can get the seriousness of what you just said. That marriage is heavy. It is weighty because its purpose is to display the gospel. Some of you are in marriage and you entered into marriage without even knowing the weightiness that your marriage was supposed to, was intended to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to hear today. It is a gift of God that you are there. Come to Him and pray, God, help my marriage, help my love for my wife, help my love for my husband to reflect the gospel. Help my commitment to this marriage reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. For some of you who are not married and you're contemplating marriage, let me put that weight on you and say the only way that you will come to marriage in a pleasing way to God is if you come to marriage saying, Lord, I want to love my spouse and commit and be made one with my spouse in a way that would glorify you. My friends, this is why any sex outside of marriage is taking something that God has meant to picture His relationship and distorting it so that we don't even get what God intended for marriage anymore. This is why we walk away from it so easily. It's why it doesn't mean much in our culture anymore. Church, let me speak to you for a minute. It's time for us to take our marriages seriously such that our love for our spouse, both in private and in public, would represent a sacrificial love to them. That's what God's calling us to. So that people would know, if you love her like that, and Christ loves me like you love her, I want Christ. Hmm. So Jesus says, let me get, I'm, I'm got, off, got off track. Let me get back. Let's finish the text. Then I'll give you some applications. The disciples say to him, if such is the case, then it's better not to marry. Jesus says, not everyone can receive this statement, but only to him who it's been given. Not everyone can receive it, but only to him who it's been given. In other words, what he's about to say is something that's a, a gift. It's something that's given. Not only understanding, I believe, but the actual condition. So he gives three conditions in which your singleness, and I'm using eunuch here. I don't believe Jesus is literally talking in marriage and then eunuchs. I think he's using eunuchs as someone who is single or celibate. I think that's an illustration for us to see. So Jesus teaches... A couple of things, celibacy, singleness is a gift of God and it's a real option for those to whom it's been given. But that option means that you live in the celibacy or the singleness, not consummating or not acting in a way of what sexually brings this union of marriage together, but abstaining from that. And there are three ways he says, some by nature. In other words, some, it's impossible to marry or have children. For those, it's been given to them. God has done that. We trust His sovereignty. Some by others. Some desire marriage and it just not, does not occur. Some have been abandoned or divorced, as we saw in, in verse 9. Some are divorced and they don't get remarried. I think 1 Corinthians 7 addresses that. What, what, how should we respond to that? And Paul addresses it. We'll not go into that there. But some have that there. And then some by choice. Some have a calling, a gift that they would say, I can give myself. Look what he says in the end of the verse. 
Some who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Some decide on singleness as a gift from God so that they can give themselves to the kingdom of heaven. Now let's be clear. If you're already married, that's not your gift. You're to stay in your marriage. But that is the choice of some. So if you're not married or if you're divorced and you're not remarried, then that's a possibility here. What is God doing? Can you give yourselves? Is it something that God would give you that you could risk everything for the kingdom of God? Now, my time is up, so let me make some applications for us and then I'll close. Application number one, if you're married. This text, I believe, teaches that if you're married in this place, listen your marriage, because of the very nature of marriage, your marriage doesn't belong to you, it belongs to God. So I'm going to ask you in these moments, would you, some of you need to grab your spouse's hand and say, can we just give our marriage to God? Can we acknowledge together, this marriage doesn't belong to us, it belongs to God. Let's pray He would use it for His glory. If you're married, that's your prayer. If you are contemplating, I'm, I'm, I'm careful but serious here because I know this happens. If you, anybody in this room, I'm not talking to them, I'm talking to you. If you, in your mind, in your thoughts, have contemplated or actively are contemplating adultery, sexual morality, I'm going to call you today. Would you repent? God is gracious and He will forgive. And He takes marriage seriously. Because it's His to define, He designed it, it's His to determine. If that thought is there, if that glance is there, if you've already said words, if you have taken movements and actions toward adultery, would you today repent of that and come to our God and honor marriage? Why? Because it's His. He defines it. He designs it. He wants your love for your spouse to glorify Him. Would you repent? Thirdly, if you're contemplating divorce, it would not be beyond the realm of possibility that there would be a couple sitting in this place that you actively, either today or this week or next week, contemplating divorce. I want to ask you, what has gone wrong? What wrong has been committed that you are refusing to forgive your spouse? What dispute have you had? What characteristic or trait that you can't overcome? The body of Christ is here to help you walk through that. Let the body be a part of your life. Would you confide in others that can fight with you for your marriage? Because, in reference to Matthew 18, listen, if our marriages reflect Christ, there is nothing, there is nothing that you could do that would make Christ turn and walk from you. So my friends, believers in this room, there should be nothing that would make us turn from our spouse. Would you commit to that kind of faithfulness today? Number four, if you've been divorced and you're single, would you use, spend, see that time as time that God has granted you to use for His glory? Know that your Savior, whose faithfulness was meant to emulate, or your marriage was meant to emulate, even though it was broken with sinfulness, either of you or someone else, your Savior in that singleness will never forsake you. He will never renounce you. He will never be unfaithful to you. Turn to Him. Trust Him in the midst of it. If you've been divorced in this room and your divorce was uh, your initiative and, and your sinfulness in it, would you repent and ask forgiveness from God and your former spouse? 
If possible, seek reconciliation. Restoration. This would be a wonderful picture of the gospel and reconciliation. If not possible, then use your singleness to the fullest extent of God's glory and God's kingdom. If not possible, you're already remarried, then remain faithful to your current marriage and give your marriage to the King. This union belongs to God. All of us, listen, remember in all of this, the gospel speaks to our sinfulness. So listen, just like when I sin against my wife and I come to her and I say, Jenny, would you forgive me for being rude, for being unkind, for being unthinking? And she forgives me. Even in divorce, we get to God, who is our husband, and we say, God, would you forgive me? Go to Him. Know that the gospel speaks to the hurt of divorce. Go to Him. Church, a couple of statements to us as a church. Very quickly, fight for healthy marriages in our church. Amen? Let's fight for our own marriages here, both ours and others. Walk beside those who are going through the hurts and the hardships, even if those who are going through divorce. We empathize with hurt and pain. We encourage humility and holiness. And we nurture forgiveness and reconciliation. Let's walk together. Everybody in here pray for the marriages in this church to exemplify and testify Christ's love and faithfulness. And pray for those who are single. And God would use them. Some of them preparing them for marriages. Some of them to use to risk everything for God's kingdom.